And there's actually a, there's a version of the Bible that I think is really neat. I don't use it a whole lot. Um, and in fact, it still is in pretty good condition, but I would encourage others to get it as well. It's called the Reader's Bible. And what it does is it takes out all the breakdowns. So it just says James, and then it's just James as text. There's no scriptural, I mean, there's no, there's no address, right? So there's no like chapter and verse breakdown. It's just the text because that's how it was originally written. It was all written together as one text. And then scholars and theologians have come in and said, well, we should put these verses here. And, and those are great because it's going to help me to be able to say to you, hey, we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. However, it was not originally broken down that way. It was, it was a letter or in some cases a narrative or, or they were poems, but there were no, no breakdowns. And we do tend to find that, that these are really great logical breakdowns. But always just remember that as we do expositional preaching, that what we're preaching this day connects to what was preached the previous week, which connects to what was preached the previous week. Um, it is a great um, practice, if you can, to try and read that thing in its entirety, um, which is why at the beginning of James, we read James 1 all the way through to the very end of James, to so hear that, that continuity. Um, so, faith without works is dead. So we're going to talk about faith being dead or alive today. But just take a look again at what it follows. And what it follows is how we were called to be doers of the word, not hearers only. How we should bridle our tongue. How we should serve those who cannot serve us back. How we should not show partiality. And then he, he turns that all around. And it is like a very good transition. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith and does not have works? So he just talked about some works we should be doing. And then he says... He's kind of anticipating this argument. So we're going to push into this. Um, but before we do, listen to Hebrews 6, he, Hebrews 11.6. In my own study, I've been working through Hebrews. And um, I got to this verse again the other day. Such a simple verse, but man, how easy is it to forget? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Period. In a world that believes that philanthropy and serving others will somehow make us good and good enough that God would allow us into his heaven, Hebrews 11.6 makes it so simple. Without faith, it is impossible. Not hard, not you can figure this out, but it is impossible to please God without faith. All right, so, and I think you and I, uh, we're, we're probably like, okay, yeah, we know, we get it, we're, we're gathered here on Sundays, right? So isn't that an indicator of faith? And as I look around the room, I'm, I'm comfortable in that for, for this room, but you know, also know that the churches are also full all across town and in many cities and in many states and even around the world. And what's preached in the pulpit is not always the gospel. And what's always expected is not always honoring and glorifying to Christ. We have many false gospels out there. This goes right back to the simplicity of it all. Wherever we sit, wherever we go, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what you and I need is faith. And if we're sitting here this morning, we're like, okay, I've got faith. I'm pretty sure I've got faith. Then James is going to give us a litmus test, and he's going to say, okay, do you have the right faith? Okay, so that's kind of the, the, the thrust here is, what does authentic faith look like? And if you look for a common thread all through James, that seems to be what his book is all about, is authentic faith. Pure and undefiled religion is this. 
right? Faith looks like this. And so he's, he's going to walk us through practical living and genuine faith, especially in this world. All right, so here's where we are. We're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that, apart, that faith apart from works is useless? Useless, sorry. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is a fun passage. All right. So here, here's his kind of breakdown. All right. Um, and you'll notice that it's, a, it's always a joke and it's a recurring joke like there's going to be three points. Right. But it's because you, it's just a good way to break down a passage. Even in your own personal study, if you've got, if you've got this long passage and there's a lot of points that they can be pulled out. It's really good to kind of go back to three. There's just something simple and easy with three. We can usually, um, in fact, I work with a teacher, and if she says, do you need prayer, give me three things. And she'll say, just give me three things to pray for. You might have more, but just give me three things. And her, her rationale is this. I can remember three things. I can't remember five. I can't guarantee I can pray for four, but I can do three. And so she'll ask specifically for three things. Three things for this passage, okay? You've got a proposition. He's gonna, here's like his big idea, his big thing that he's trying to push. And then he's going to give you three examples. Notice how James even got it. He gave you three examples. And then he's going to have a concluding statement. So the first part is the proposition. Here's what you and I, the big takeaway, if as you leave today and you're leaving and, and um, you're, you're trying to figure out what was all this about, it really comes back to like James 2, 14 through 17. Everything else flows from that. Everything else is explaining and giving substance to, and it's, it's trying to give you examples. But 2, 14 through 17 really captures the heart of, of, of this particular passage. So we're going to begin with the proposition. We'll look at his three examples briefly, and then he's going to pull it all together. Um, as Bo says, we're going to put a, a bow on it there at the very end, um, and he's going to make a concluding statement. And so here's the proposition that you and I need. And, and in simple, it's verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's the proposition. Faith works. Okay? Now, let's read 14 through 17 as a chunk, and then let's move through it. Again, he says, what good is it, my brothers? Here's his proposition. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
we got to consider that, y'all. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so you and I have to just soberly think of this, that the faith that you and I profess like we believe in God, we believe in Jesus Christ, He's died for it. the faith that we pr- profess, if it does not produce good works, not just good thoughts, not good theology, not good actions like that are that are kind of self like self-centered, you know, like hey, I'm gonna do my quiet time or something like that. But if it's if it does not produce good works, then it's not genuine saving faith. That's what scripture tells us. That is problematic for even even Martin Luther struggled with this part of James because Martin Luther saying no it's by faith alone we are saved absolutely church and faith will produce good works absolutely church it's not two separate coins it's not two separate issues it's the same whenever we have faith we will produce good works but um, we're going to come back to this at the very end you and I were not not, not, not. We were not saved by good works. We were saved by our faith. We were saved to good works, which is evidence of our faith. And so that's kind of the outworking of it. Not saved by good works, but saved to good works. We are saved by our faith, but our faith produces those good works. And so Martin Luther even, and, and if you've ever struggled with it, then you can join history because many people have struggled with James... Uh, this particular passage, 14 through 26 of chapter 2, because we, we profess, even at our church, by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, to God's glory. I mean, in Scripture, like we, produce, or we profess all the alones, all the solas uh, of the Reformation. But my fear is that, that we walk alongside many Christians who profess a faith that has absolutely no works and no fruit. The greater fear is that sometimes we can look to them and we can assess their fruit and and their lack of good works and yet not evaluate ourselves. Lord, am I doing the good works that you've created for me in Christ Jesus? And so James is really hitting something here. Remember, he's not writing to the lost. He's writing to believers already. He's writing to those who are scattered. He's writing to us and he's telling you and me in essence through God's Holy Spirit that inspired these words and that's within us receiving them right now, that if we have a faith that does not produce good works, then it is not genuine, authentic faith. You preach that today, then you're preaching heresy to a world, but you're preaching biblical Christianity. His quick example makes sense for what he was uh, given us before about taking care of the widows and the orphans and not showing partiality. And, and he says, hey, if you go to someone and you see their need and you tell them to go, go uh, what's it say? Um, I lost it. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. And you basically say, Just, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. I'm, I'm praying for you. And you do nothing. He says, what good have you actually done? Right? So, so I want to clarify that, that it's not the right theology that we try and shape here at Cross Life. It's not the right convictions of, oh, I, I feel bad. But without the right action, it actually shows a shallowness, a, a weakness, or a lack of faith. And I'm glad James wrote it and not me. 
Okay, but that's his main point in this passage. And if you ha- if you get that, then everything else just kind of makes sense. That that we can feel all this, we can know all this. If we do nothing with it, then it actually shows a lack of faith. Okay, now here's going to be the the protection I want to give you is don't leave here saying I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. That's not his point either. He's saying, you know, I, I let me back up. I actually think of it this way. Some people can put their finger on the date and the time in which they were saved. I can remember the occurrence, but I don't remember the time and the day. And I've, I've walked with many youth and, and people in life, and it's almost kind of become one of those things of, well, I don't remember when I was saved, so maybe I'm not. And I'm always like, no, 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 that's, that's not it. Look at how Jesus handles those who come to him. He never, whenever they come to him with questions or sickness or illness, or they're asking more about the faith or what must I do to be saved, he never points back and says, now what day and time? Right? I think that that's a, a blessing that God gives some people. But for me, the way my brain works, I have no concept of time. If, by the way, I say I'm going to get with you in five minutes, and then yet it's five days later, in my world, that was my five minutes. Okay, Or if you and I are talking, and I'm like, yeah, I remember the other day when we were talking. For me, it was three days, but for you, that was three months ago. That's why I need people like Christy who are like, don't forget, remember, do this. That's why I need you to come alongside and say, hey, don't forget this. My concept of time is really skewed. And so the coronavirus, I mean, that just really messed it up. Five years and one year and five minutes, it's all the same. So I have no concept of time. So that's one of my... One of those things where I think it's amazing that God blesses people with, with that remembrance and that recurrence of, here's when I saved you from that life. Like, I think that's just a huge blessing that people get to celebrate. I take great comfort personally whenever Jesus does not look in Scripture and say, now, when, when did I save you last time? Or when did you rededicate? And like, he doesn't point back to all those. What, he, what does he do? He deals with them in the present. He says, in this moment, go and sin no more. Right? So I'm going to say, don't anticipate like what you will be doing. Don't even dwell on what you haven't done. But in this moment, presently with Scripture in front of us, what is God doing with you and with your faith as He shapes us by His Word? The message today is not going to be, go and do more. It's really going to be more shaped like this. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Because then... It places it all back on what is it that God wants you to do, not what do we want you to do, and not what do you need to make yourself go do. You understand the difference? If we're not careful, we read this and we become legalistic, is what I'm saying. I need to go do these things to prove that I really am a Christian. No. When we grow in our faith, and our faith grows within us, then we will do those things. It will be a byproduct our tendency is to let ourselves step in and start pruning the fruit that God's trying to do within us. Okay, so there, there's a slight difference there. Okay, so that's, that's the thrust of it. But let's go, to the, let's go to the greatest act of faith and works done on our behalf. And it is simply this, that you and I can obey. We have the ability to obey because we have been loved by God the Father. I just want that remembrance at the very very beginning. You and I are not going to try to obey to earn faith. We can obey because we have faith. And we have faith because Christ came to redeem us from sin and transfer us, uh, it says, from the domain of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
So this is something that we can actually do now. Like there's a privilege in doing those things which God puts on our hearts because they come from God, designed by God, but all of it simply because Jesus himself came down to us. And he didn't just come to give us a better understanding of himself. He didn't just come so that people would know more about God, but he came to give himself for us. And his faith in God the Father would move him to such extreme measures that even though he, dro- or, sorry, he dripped or sweated drops of blood, he would still fulfill the Father's purpose and go to the cross. Like his faith was so deep-seated that it produced the greatest work of all of eternity. And it shifted the cosmos so that there can be redemption for all things. And it's coming our way. There will be a day when we are fully redeemed because of the work of Christ on the cross. His faith produced works, his works proved his faith, and in doing so, he shifted eternity for all of us who call upon his name. He really fulfilled the royal law. Remember last week whenever James was talking about the royal law and it came down to, um, what, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at Jesus embodying that, loving God the Father to such a degree that he would come and die on a cross. Loving us so much that he would bleed and die for us. He fulfilled the royal law, the greatest work. And so just kind of keep that in front of you as, as the chief motivator and understanding of, of our lives. If we want to be like Christ, then we have to be like Christ. He gave himself up, bore our sins, and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf so that you and I can be called children of God. Right. So, with that being said, there's going to be two things that that you want to consider here if conviction um, kind of wells up within us. Number one, if we realize in, in doing this and God's convicting us that we have not been doing those things which God has called us to do and therefore we're not living out our faith, I would say number one, we're being disobedient. And what grace the Father has given us, as, as we're getting ready to move through, what grace the Father has given us that whenever we repent and turn back to Him, He readily forgives us. Think of the prodigal son who realizes where he is, and he says, oh, if I could just go back to my father, like, and I will, just, I will be a slave in his house. And whenever the father sees him, he fully embraces him and rejoices, for his son was dead and now has come home. So Christians take heart that, that if God is working through this, it may simply be, yes, we are being disobedient. Oh, but praise God that he gave us repentance so that we can turn back to him. Repentance is a good thing. Or it could be this, and this is one that is fixed through repentance also, and it may simply be that we do not possess true faith. That's what James says. It may be that the faith that we say we have, we actually don't have. Now, what I mean by that is he's about to give examples. And in one of them, he's going to give verse 19 about the demons believe. He, He at no point ever says, by the way, that there is no faith. He calls it dead faith. There's always faith in something. There's always a belief in something. It's is it the right belief, is it the right faith, and we know it's the right faith if it produces good works. All right, so here we go. Three examples, verses 18 through 25. Here's, here's 
him trying to help us understand this in several different ways. He says, but some of you will say, in light of that, some of you will say, you have faith, I have works. To which James says, now he has like this imaginary conversation going on. Um, and he's, he says, but, but you show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was, was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another, word, or another way. All right, his three examples of the demons. Okay, take a look at that. You believe that, that God is one, you do well, right? It's kind of like, good job, fantastic. Even the demons believe and they shudder. And he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead? Now, what's, what's interesting about this is, think about the Gospels. Even the demons really did acknowledge that he was the Son of God. Sometimes they even said, what, would, what are you going to do to us? Or why are you here, Son of God? The demons understood who Jesus was. They had a belief, they had a faith, and yet it did not move them to worship at all. It still moved them to self-preservation. They even said, don't, don't destroy us, but at least cast us into the pigs. So what's the big deal about you believe that God is one? That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 6.4 to the Shema, which begins like this. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was one of the most basic tenets of their orthodoxy, of their belief system. So to be able to say that was to subscribe to the most basic truth of what it meant to be someone who would follow God or be a people of God. For us, it's the same thing. If we profess uh, belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, it's the most basic thing that every Christian should hold on to. Now, that's what the Shema was for them, that God is one. All right, so he's like, you believe the most basic thing. Good job. You do well. Even the demons know that. Right? He's saying that, that even, even that simple acknowledgement is not enough if it does not produce or, or, or wrought a change within us. But look at how the demons respond. Even demons believe, and what do they do? They shudder. But they do not worship. In other words, they know who it is that they are professing acknowledgement of, but it does not produce anything in them except, get this, they continue their evil acts. They have a wrong, misplaced faith. They have an acknowledgement. They have a belief of, hey, I, I believe that that's who you are, yet it will not change who I am. And where it causes them to shudder, I fear that as a culture, even in our churches, we have lost the ability to shudder anymore before the holiness of God. So it is not... Enough, He says just to, to profess it with one's mouth that, that he or she believes the truth about God if the fruit of their lives contradicts the reality of that profession. Right? So we do. We profess with our mouth that we believe in Jesus, that, 
that he has died for our sins, yet at the same time, if it does not produce God-fearing fruit in our lives, then it shows that that's not a true profession of faith. You know, the whole realm of Satan's, uh, Satan's spiritual darkness has good orthodoxy. And it's all built on a purely evil faith. So there can be right knowledge, poor faith. Look at Abraham. He says, okay, if the demons are enough, take a look at, the, take a look at Abraham as proof of this. And, and this is a fun one for me. In fact, the sermon was about, um, on, in outline format, it was about two pages longer. Um, I decided to just encourage you to go look at that, and I'm going to give you the, the SparkNote version of it. Okay, but, but he points to Abraham, who's the father of their faith. They are, they are Jews because of Abraham, right? He was called, was not Abraham our father justified by works? That's what we got to look at. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see, that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, look at this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so if you don't know the Old Testament... And I would say, I get asked a lot, where do I need to start reading? I always tell people, begin reading in the New Testament. Like you're start, trying to start a new reading plan, starting in Genesis. Those don't work for the vast majority of people because, man, you are flying and then you hit Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and then that plane's going down. What we need is we need that knowledge of Jesus' life. We need the gospel. So start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And then as you are encouraged and enriched through that, then go back to the Old Testament. Most people, though, don't, don't fully understand this verse because they haven't thought on what's going on in Abraham. That's, this is where it gets a little tricky. So I've tried to make it very simple, and uh, by God's wisdom, I think it is. Okay, first verse. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? So that's where you throw up hands and go, wait, 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 faith alone. You just said he was justified by works whenever he was willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. Okay, so go to Genesis chapter 15. So hold your place here, because this makes the most sense in understanding this passage if we just see it this way. Because he just said, wasn't he justified whenever he offered up Isaac? So go to Genesis 15. I'm sorry, let's, uh, yeah, Genesis 15 is where I want us to be. But then he goes on in James, and he says, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham was declared righteous. Look at this in Genesis 15, 6. So Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believes and he is determined to be righteous before God at that point. All right, so he had, that's when he gets, uh, quote unquote, his, his salvation, his faith. There it is. That's the Old Testament equivalent. He's been called righteous. Now, in Genesis, you're going to scroll or flip to your right to Genesis 22. And it's not until Genesis 22 that he offers up Isaac. Okay, so what's my point? My point is simply this. If you and I read James chronologically, then it looks like he offered up his son Isaac and he was justified and then he fulfilled scripture by being righteous, which is not the chronological order. Genesis 15 came first. He believed in God. He was declared righteous. And then he offers up Isaac. 
He has faith that produces the works, is the point. If we read James the wrong way, and if we don't know the story of Abraham, then we will upend the conversation. Y'all are kind of nice, so y'all are with me. Y'all, y'all get, okay, good. Because that's, that's really the, the biggest fly in the ointment to me, is if someone doesn't know, right, if they don't know Scripture, they're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, they, and they want to start, then what we tend to do is a lot of people are like, well, what's a book that I know that they'll get something out of? Oh, James, I always get something out of James. Let's send them to James. But they don't have the rich history of, of all the other Scripture that's come before James, it sets the context for James, then that gets confusing. So he is not saying that Abraham was saved because he offered Isaac. He's saying that because Abraham had faith, he's able to even consider offering up Isaac. That such deep faith will produce this fruit. Now, I've got to hit a side note. Actually, let me make the main point with that one right here. The main point of that is faith and works, church, they're inseparable. Faith produces good works. Good works are produced by faith. They are inseparable. So what do we do with someone who professes that they have faith, but they do not have good works? We begin to walk alongside them and get this. We try to help them find opportunity to do good works. Hey, come with me while I'm doing this or encouraging them to to follow through. Okay, so I want to jump into this. As a father... How could Abraham even consider putting Isaac on the altar? I know that this isn't like there um, in the text, but I feel like we need to do it because it actually is there. Okay? Why is he willing? I mean, I cannot wrap my head around. I'm, I'm glad my son left. I cannot wrap my head around one of my children dying, let alone willing to slay them or sacrifice them for God. I remember getting to that in Genesis and seeing that Abraham is determined and he's going forward. And even now, after years, I'm just like, no, like what torment, how, how like dark that moment must have been. And I'm going to tell you, it was only because of the richness of his faith that he could consider that. Look at, and I do want you to see this, Hebrews 11:19. This is a verse that just changed it all for me whenever I read this years and years ago. And even knowing this verse, whenever I read Genesis 22, I'm just like, oh, the, what must that be like? But Hebrews 11:19, Hebrews 11 is often called the, the hall of faith. And it's by faith and by faith. And it's telling you these heroes who've gone before us in their faith. And in the middle of Abraham's section, Hebrews 11:19 says this. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So why or how in the world could someone like Abraham be willing to sacrifice his son? His faith was such that he knew that if he had to sacrifice Isaac, that God would raise Isaac from the dead because that's just the God that had revealed himself to Abraham. I was actually found out this week that when the word consider there, that he considered that God was able, that that word, the, the richness of that word in the original language was such that he saw everything that had been around him, all that God had revealed in that moment and understood simply that God would provide, period. Okay, so I had to come back from that, but there is such a deep-seated faith for him. Now look at Rahab. He says, in the same way, Rahab, the prostitute, was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out. Y'all, Rahab, most people don't know her story. You would find it in, a, in Joshua. 
right? We start that one-year reading plan, we die out in the law, and we never make it to Joshua, okay? So here's another trick for the Old Testament. I like to start with the minor prophets, so go to Matthew, and then go one book before Matthew, and start reading the minor prophets going backwards also. Don't read the, don't read the books in reverse, like chapter 4 to chapter... I mean, like, take that book and read it through, and then and keep moving back through the prophets. But Rahab's story basically shows us a woman... She was opposite of Abraham in every single way. She was, a, she was a woman. She was a pagan. She was a prostitute. And so this pagan prostitute is living in a city and, and spies, um, God's people, some spies go in. Uh, the king hears about it and they believe that these spies are in Rahab's apartment and she hides them. And she, she misleads them. Now, why in the world would she do this? Her story, her narrative, uh, the kind of referring to Joshua chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Okay? Um, that, that kind of captures where she's hiding the spies. Why would she do it except that she must have possessed some type of faith in God that was willing to do something so radical that would cost her her life, yet her faith was there, though she wasn't, quote, of the people of God. And you know what? She is listed in the hall of faith. There was such genuine faith in that moment that you and I would look at her and say, there's no way that person could have faith. And yet, God says, she has honored me with her faith. Be like her. Hebrews 11 in the hall of fame says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. Her faith... Though by worldly standards, we would say, mm, probably not a Christian. Right? Her faith was such that she's been included in the hall of faith and it moved her to good works because good works and genuine faith are inseparable. And so his concluding statement is James 2, verse 26. It says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, let's pull all this together. Ephesians chapter 2. Right? Let's go to Ephesians 2. Let's pull it together. Trent and I were praying before the service, and he referenced this, and I'm like, oh, God, that's just like you to do that. Um, because I think it's the perfect synthes- synthesizing of these two thoughts. Right? We need faith alone. It's not our own doing. We should be producing works, or it's not faith at all. So go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And depending on where we're preaching, we emphasize different parts of this passage. And you're going to see by the end how this all pulls together. All right. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Paul writing to believers. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Remember that cross slide? Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all, all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
cross life, you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And now look at this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And there's a period. And then it's followed by verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What's it say? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all there. Right? We need Scripture put before us and we need to check Scripture with Scripture. The greatest way to understand a verse or other scripture is not always to run to a commentary, but it's to check it against other scripture and let scripture prove scripture true. Verse 8 through 10, listen to it one more time. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It was enough, right? Your faith was enough because of his grace. And this Christian is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. So you did not work your way to your salvation. It was not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want to come back to what what I said I want to clarify at the very beginning, that we are not saved by good works. We are saved to good works. We do not obey so that we can become saved. We are saved, therefore we obey. And that's what he's trying to get through to us, is that if we profess faith, that if we possess salvation that has come from him, then we are his workmanship. And I, I am not a, a um, what's the right word here? I'm not a handyman. I'm not good at crafting anything. I can't color in the lines. I can't draw a stick figure without breaking its neck. Like, I'm not very good at, at anything like that. I'm not really good at, uh, at a, um, understanding that word workmanship in, in a very real way in, in some regards. But I get the concept that God has created you and me uniquely for purposes that are completely His. He takes great joy and great delight in the fact that we are his workmanship. Just as some people have that, they, they are um, very skilled and they can say, look at what I can do. And there's this beautiful creation that is a byproduct. So God takes, um, takes great joy and sings and rejoices over who we are. And that workmanship has been created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. And that is to do the good works. Other scripture tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God making his appeal through us. That's the good works we're supposed to be doing. So as we conclude, I like how Matthew Henry puts it. Um, I actually have it written in my book in the, uh, with James. So that every time I read James, I read it. Matthew Henry says, Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. And we must see to it that we have both. So I think it's just a good summary of all of that. Okay, so, so as we conclude here, and we're, we're getting ready to sing one more praise to our God, how do we think rightly on this?
right? And I told you that there's probably two things. One is we, we find that we've been disobedient or we tend to be disobedient. We repent and we turn back to God. Or it may be that as we, we see Scripture, we realize, okay, I don't have that saving faith. There's, there's no even desire to do good works for others. Like it's just not there. Praise God that by His grace we can call upon His name and He will save us. And He will put within us the faith that will produce the fruit so that an unbelieving world can see how radically different believers live for a God that they truly see as glorified and holy. And we can call other men and women to call upon His name. That's the purpose of the good works. Not so that we feel better, but so that others may boast in Him. Okay. But what do we do? I think we just think very rightly on these verses. Just be, be real before God. Here's what Hebrews 4 says. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Context of that, whenever I say how do we think rightly and what do we do in this moment is, I think God's Word already does the work. Preachers want to try and give you like three to five ways that you can work this thing out. And, you know, Ricky, what am I supposed to do whenever I go from here? Are you saying I should be doing this or that? I'm going to always tell you, I don't know what is God telling you. I'm going to encourage you, and I will walk with you through that, and I will talk and try and clean up muddy water. But maybe you also just needed the encouragement, believers, that even though you're weary, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is the good works that God has put before you. One day, you and I will find our rest. Until then, he tells us, you won't truly grow weary because I'm going to raise you up on eagle's wings. And even though the faint grow weary, I'm going to keep you moving. So it may be that you're tired, but it may very well be that you're tired because you're doing the good works that your faith has produced. And the reason you do those good works was not even your own doing, but it's because he gave you the faith. So be encouraged and keep going. But it also may be the conviction that you have that that you cling to this faith, but it's not producing any works. And that's something that you got to talk to God about and be sensitive to. And I will absolutely visit with anyone. But the first person you've got to deal with is God and the Holy Spirit within you. So as conviction comes, realize that, that is, that's just like me walking alongside Jackson and seeing danger along the way and pulling him close to say, stay, stay away from there. Or it's looking back and saying, give me your hand so I can lead you through this. That's God's conviction in our life. Let's pray. Lord God. Thank you that you give us this corrective passage. Yes, we are saved by faith alone. But our faith is proven by the works that you have desired for us. Lord, we profess to know you and to be yours. Lord, I pray that you give us the conviction to continue walking or to begin walking in the good works that you have produced for us. And I've often found that those good works begin in the home and with those near us. They often tend to begin with with seeing the fruit of the Spirit develop more fully in us. And so it it may be, God, that, that you're calling us to such simple good works with those that are so near us so that you may be honored and glorified. But, Lord, your good works also can propel us to the ends of the earth. And we don't know 
what you would have us to do except this. That we do not boast in anything except this, that we know and fear the Lord. So, Lord, help us to know you and fear you and worship you. And, Lord, thank you that we can come and hear and read your word together and be mutually encouraged. Because the days get long and weary. But we have one another that you have given us so that we can make much of you. Amen.